Could have worn my red-green plaid. <laughs> I've actually got one. You're not surprised, right? Nope. Oh, boy. It's good to be back with you. Uh, last week, we, we started thinking together along this trajectory, this business of being grown up in Christ, being mature in Christ. And uh, the text that we began with last week... Um, this is where we, we keyed in. Colossians 1, 27 and 28. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And I have underlined the three phrases that really stand out in this passage. Christ in you. There is a lifetime of pondering just in that. Pondering the wonder of what that means. The hope of glory. And as we saw last week, this hope is not just a sort of little passive like I hope I win the lottery. It's an expectation that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so taken together, we have this notion, these two verses, the notion of Christ in you, the certain expectation of the divine presence in full measure, and last week we saw that the first implication of this, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that we be mature or grown up in Christ. We kept reading in Colossians last week. We got down to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where we read, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so the first implication of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that we be grown up, be mature in Christ. And here we saw the second metaphor, this metaphor of being filled. I shared with you last week um, something that A.B. Simpson wrote about this verse, and I'll repeat this again because it's the absolute core of this passage. He says the emphatic word in this verse is filled. It is the Greek pleru, which means to fill full. So full, there will be no room left empty. 
it does not mean to have a measure of the Holy Spirit and to know a good deal of Christ, but to be wholly filled with and possessed by the Holy Ghost and utterly lost in the life and fullness of Jesus. It is the completeness of the filling which constitutes the very essence of the perfect blessing. It is all connected with a living person. We are not filled with an influence. We are not filled with a sensation. We are not filled with a set of ideas and truths as attractive as that might be to people like me. We are not filled with a blessing, but we are filled with a person. This reduces Christian life to great simplicity. We do not require to get filled in a great many compartments and with a great many different experiences ideas or influences but in the center of our being to receive him in his personal life and fullness and then he flows into every part and lives out his own life in all the diversified experiences and activities of our manifold lives what this means is that when Christ moves in, something has to change in here. In my old way of saying and doing and thinking has to change. It has to give way. Last week we thought about this idea of uh, exemplars of excellence. And we... We looked at Lee and Louise Little, very familiar to you. Um, we're blessed as a congregation to have had him with us for as many years as God gave us. Um, and we, we looked at them as exemplars of excellence. Um, you know, it's the idea of when you look at a group and you want to learn things, you don't look at people in the middle, you look at people at the two ends, you know, like either really bad examples like don't be like that or really good examples do be like them and so we're taking it in the positive direction so rather than looking at complete wrecks we're looking at exemplars of excellence Lee and Louise Little I shared with you last week Lee's own words um, of how he wrote in a missions quarterly given account of his call from God into his life's work and then how he responded in obedience to that. We also looked at David Brainerd at some considerable time. He's on your left screen. And I want to return to David Brainerd's diary again. Uh, for those of you who may have missed last week, uh, David Brainerd is a very interesting guy. He lived a short life, 29 years. Absolutely brilliant student at Yale. But when a revival swept through and he made an unguarded comment, ever done that? He made an unguarded comment in which he said basically um, one of his tutors 
spirituality was about as much as a chair. That was overheard and reported the administration. They expelled him. His whole life changed, and he wound up going out as a missionary to First Nations people. Probably the worst missions candidate ever, because he already had TB at that time. He'd been expelled from Yale. He was an egghead student. That's what his whole life was, is studying. He came from a family that was weak and sickly, and he struggled with chronic clinical depression, if not bipolar. Least likely missions candidate on the face of the earth. And yet, as we saw last week, beginning uh, with, Charles, with John Wesley, and right on through this litany of people that have said, David Brainerd's diary is on your must-read list. you got to read this guy. Interesting. And even John Piper we saw last week. John Piper testified that he looks at Brainerd in ex as an example of what a wreck who calls out to God night and day can accomplish. I want to return to his diary. Uh, last week we looked at this, and this was in a section where Brainerd was wrestling with this idea of what he wanted to do, what his call was, and he finds himself out there, and he finally bends his will, as we read here, bends his will to God's will. But I want to read you the section that comes immediately after that, because it's, it's really integral to where we want to go today. You see, it's really easy to read things like that and, and to read these accounts and to think, well, yeah, you know, like these, somehow he, he just, he's just perfect. He, he's just like so out there, highly spiritual that, you know, like he had no problem doing that. This would change your mind. Here's what he writes immediately after this that's behind me. At the same time, I had as quick and lively a sense of the value of worldly comforts as, I, as ever I had, but only saw them infinitely overmatched by the worth of Christ's kingdom and the propagation of his blessed gospel. The quiet settlement, the certain place of abode, the tender friendship which I thought I might be likely to enjoy in consequence of such circumstances appeared as valuable to me, considered absolutely in and among themselves, as ever before. But considered comparatively, they appeared nothing. Compared with the value and preciousness of an enlargement of Christ's kingdom, they vanished like the stars before the rising sun. And sure I am that although the comfortable accommodations of life appeared valuable and dear to me, yet... I did surrender and resign myself, soul and body, to the service of God and promotion of Christ's kingdom, though it should be in the loss of them all. And I could not do any other, because I could not will or choose any other. I was constrained, yet chose to say, Farewell, friends and earthly comforts, the dearest of them all, the very dearest, if the Lord calls for it, adieu, adieu. 
I will spend my life to my latest moments in caves and dens of the earth if the kingdom of Christ may thereby be advanced. I found extraordinary freedom at this time in pouring out my soul to God for his cause and especially for his kingdom that might, might be extended among the Indians far remote. And I had a great and strong hope that God would do it. I continued wrestling with God in prayer for my dear little flock here and more especially for the Indians elsewhere as well as for dear friends in one place and another till it was bedtime and I feared I should hinder the family. But oh, with what reluctance I did find myself obliged to consume time in sleep. I longed to be as a flame of fire continually glowing in the divine service, preaching and building up Christ's kingdom to my latest, my dying moment. You heard many times words in that passage that talk about choice. I chose. I chose. I was constrained, yet chose. Last week we saw that uh, based on the 19 weeks of Brainerd's life where he's living in very close contact with Jonathan Edwards that Edwards observed what's at the bottom of the slide he being Brainerd generally made it one petition in his prayer that we might not outlive our usefulness I can tell you that when I read that for the first time I stopped and thought about that for a long time David Brainerd was deadly serious about following Christ and about seeing Christ's kingdom advanced. He lived for Christ, not self. Christ's interest, not self-interest. It was a choice. It's not that Brainerd had no interests or appreciation of things that would have made his life more comfortable. Rather, it's that he chose to let Christ's interests trump his. Shortly after that journal entry, uh, Brainerd was to die. Um, just literally a matter of months. And so what happened is he moved out of his cabin in the forest and he began to use Jonathan Edwards and another friend's home as kind of a launching out place. And in that last, that last um, 19 weeks of his life, Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, spent a great deal of time, we talked about this last week, uh, ministering to him, nursing him, we would call it today. And, and obviously, they became very close. Now, not surprisingly, what we know of Brainerd Let's face it, he probably wasn't that much of a catch, and so it's no surprise he was not married. Um, no surprise, he was not married. And yet, in that last 19 weeks, we see clear evidence that probably even marriage was something that he forgot, uh, what do you call it? Forwent, that's not the right word. He didn't marry because he was chasing after Christ. That, that's what it really comes down to. 
Jonathan Edwards watched this happen one day. Four days, four days before Brainerd died. On the, this is what Edwards writes. On the morning of the next day, being Lord's Day, October 4th, as my daughter Jerusha, who chiefly attended him, came into the room, he looked at her very pleasantly and said, Dear Jerusha, are you willing to part with me? I'm quite willing to part with you. I'm willing to part with all my friends. I'm willing to part with my dear brother John. That's Jonathan Edwards. Although I love him the best of any creature living, I have committed him and all my friends to God and can leave them with God. Though, if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you. But we shall spend a happy eternity together. Footnote 67. We're going to come back to that. In the evening, as one came into the room with a Bible in her hand, he expressed himself thus. Oh, that dear book. That lovely book. I shall soon see it opened. The mysteries that are in it and the mysteries of God's providence will all be unfolded. And so connect that back to what Brainerd had put in his diary on September 1st. Although the comfortable accommodations of life appeared valuable and dear to me, yet I did surrender and resign myself, soul and body, to the service of God and promotion of God's kingdom, though it should be the loss of them all. I want to skip ahead in Brainerd's diary and land on a particular day, September 21st, 1746. September 21st, 1746. This was the first day's entry in what was to be the fifth and final section of Brainerd's diary as Edwards compiled it and published it. And so even though he was dying of TB at this time, he kept traveling back and forth from Edwards and other friends' homes to minister to his little group of First Nations people. And he'd come back and regain his strength. And in that, I want to read to you this interesting diary entry. Lord's Day, September 21st, 1746. I was so weak I could not preach, nor pretend to ride over to my people in the forenoon. In the afternoon I rode out, sat in my chair. Imagine that. You can't even stand up. And discoursed to my people from Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself. I was strengthened and helped in my discourse, and there appeared something agreeable in the assembly. I returned to my lodgings extremely tired, but thankful that I had been able to speak a word to my poor people I had been so long absent from. Was able to sleep very little this night through weariness and pain. Oh, how blessed I should be if the little I do were all done with the right views. Oh, that whether I live, I might live to the Lord. 
think about that last sentence. Oh, how blessed should I be if the little I do were all done with the right views. Oh, that whether I live, I might live to the Lord. There's something far deeper here than just outward actions. It's striking right down to the very motives. And so let's take a closer look uh, very briefly at this passage, Romans 14, verses 7 to 9. And I'll leave it to you to read the context. It's, a, it's, it's interesting that these verses show up where they do because they show up in the context of a passage where Paul is talking to people about us, Christian people, getting along with each other and not fighting and bickering and getting in wranglings about who's eating what vegetables or what meat or what any of that stuff or even what day we worship or and it's interesting that in that context we have these verses for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. I've underlined the word for, which appears as the header in each of those three verses, because grammatically, they form a construction that emphasizes something. Everything that the Apostle Paul has written in his unfolding of the argument about what we ought to be doing as we get along with each other rests upon these three fours. Swanson says that these words form a marker showing cause or a reason, or to explain or infer something, or even to show a continuation. So, the first one in seven. Four, none of us lives to himself. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown interpret the, this phrase this way. To dispose of himself or shape his conduct after his own ideas or inclinations putting it in just straight English. Doing it my way. Social scientists spend a great deal of time studying and a great deal of ink is spilt over looking at differences between the generations. And you are aware, very aware, that my generation, following the great generation, my dad's generation, has been less than great. my generation was incredibly focused on self. There's just no question. They will never call my generation the great generation. That was my dad's generation where people were selfless through the war years. But since my generation, 
increasingly, we have seen in recent times with the X, Y, and Z, this shift. And sociologists put it this way. According to one study in McLean's, 60% of Gen Zers, uh, those would be the ones born after 1995, 60% of Gen Zers want jobs that have a social impact compared to 31% of Gen Yers. And so this desire to make a difference and have a lasting social impact is seen by some social scientists as a pushback against a flow that began with my generation, a flow of profound selfishness, excessive focus on self. Now, overt, because we're all very much aware that even when we do something that's on the surface very other-focused, um, God looks at our motive. It's, it's not what I do. It's what's, what's behind it, what's underneath it. So... At Trinity, I meet a lot of students, and they're coming through, and I'm telling you that it really doesn't make a great deal of difference between whether that student has a Christian background or a Sikh background or I've had like three or four Muslims that it's very fashionable to self-identify as being focused on others. Uh, the passage that um, Tennyson read us, Trinity Western, my program is, is, is founded on the whole concept of servant leadership, and it's very attractive, even to Muslims. And so it, it's very easy for us to fall into this trap where we think to ourselves when we read this passage, Right, we don't live to ourselves. That would be selfish. I live for others. I'm committed to altruism. That must impress God. I'm okay. No. Here's what Vincent says. The meaning a Christian should live for others so often drawn from these words is not the teaching of the passage. By the way, he wrote that in 1887. <laughs> that long ago. Wust says this, his whole life belongs not to himself, but to his Lord. No one of us lives to himself does not mean every man's conduct affects others for better or worse, whether he will or not. It means... No Christian is his own end in life. What is always present to his mind as a rule of conduct is the will and interest of the Lord. The same holds true of his dying. He does not choose either the time or the mode of it, like a Roman Stoic, to please himself. He dies when the Lord wills, as the Lord will, and even by his death glorifies God. And so... The chief end of our life is not to please ourselves. It's not to please others. The chief end of our death is not to please ourselves. It's not to please others. Neither self nor others 
is sufficient. Wiersbe writes, I'm living my own life is a statement no Christian ought to make. For we belong to the Lord, whether we live or die. He is the Lord. And we must live to please him. So often the Christian who has questionable practices in his or her life cannot honestly say that these practices are done as unto the Lord. For in reality, they are practiced for selfish pleasure and not to honor the Lord. I want to look at uh, briefly with you at another exemplar of excellence and what, what it might look like to be grown up in Christ. We still have ringing in our ears Romans 14, 7 and 8. The end of life, the end of death are both Christ. Christ, Christ. What's it look like? Dieter Zander's life is an example of what it looks like. He was a very interesting guy. A real high flyer. I, I won't go into all the innovations and all the ministries that he started, but he was widely known in the U.S. Um, starting in the mid-80s. And highly innovative. Um, churches, well, one of his churches uh, had a slogan where the flock likes to rock. Like, really relevant and not surprisingly, he was headhunted and hired by Willow Creek, and he spent a number of years there, and he did a whole lot of things, and he back out to California, and he was just one of these superstars, superstars. And then he had a stroke. And what happened in the aftermath of that stroke is very instructive to me. Here is the press release to the congregation that his lead pastor released. He says, Dear friends, as many of you know, our friend Dieter Zander suffered a stroke on February 4th, 2008. The next night, several hundred of us gathered to pray that God would spare Dieter's life. God answered those prayers, and we are thankful. But Dieter's life is not the same. He can no longer speak with the eloquence we once took for granted and has lost much of the dexterity of his right hand. Our friend who has led so many of us with his message and his music has for now been silenced. Can't play a piano with one hand. Can't sing if you can't speak. In the aftermath of it, he had to relearn how to speak. Not many weeks after his stroke, when he had only one hand that worked, a friend handed him a camera. And even though he'd never taken pictures in his whole life, uh, if I could have the next slide, please. Even though he'd never, never been a photographer in his whole life, he found that he actually was an incredible photographer. Um, if you look online, you can find all kinds of his work. Um, brilliant stuff. But in this, in this, he had to, that's one of his images. That's his self-portrait behind the scans of his brain. That's, that's what happened in his brain. Um, in this, this, this is, listen to some of the things that he had to say about himself in the before and the after. Very instructive. Before. 
God was my boss. God is my friend now. He says in a halting voice, finally able to talk after years of therapy and practice, despite his aphasia. God says, Dieter, you're not going to work. Now we play. He also said, years ago I was a popular man. Now my friends are small. Small is good. Everything changed for him. He became a freelance photographer and a stock boy at Trader Joe's. He went from universal adoration and people being blown away by him to a stock boy. What are you going to do with this? He and LaDonna uh, Whitmer collaborated to write this poem that is his reflection. It's a free verse poem. It's his reflection of what life is like now for him. The poem is called The Kingdom of Cardboard and Spoils. He says, if I'm the king of all I survey, then I am the king of cardboard and spoils. My kingdom is a noisy, windless room in the back of Trader Joe's grocery store. Here are the haphazard stacks of empty cardboard boxes. Here is a giant box baler. Here are the shopping carts marked spoils, their wire frames brimming with still good fruit, meat, and flowers. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, he defines kingdom as a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. You just connected the word choice to Brainerd's choices. Okay? My kingdom used to be a stage, a microphone, a piano, and an audience of thousands. My kingdom was a performance, a show, a sham. Then came the stroke. Now, five days a week, I arrive at Trader Joe's in the early dark, hours before the sun cracks the horizon. I push my mop up and down the aisles, sweep my broom into corners to collect the debris from the day before. The store is quiet, empty. There is one audience in this kingdom, but that's okay because I'm not performing there is no stage Dieter here, no Superman seeking to wow the masses with feats of spiritual strength. It's just me, just Dieter, the guy who mops the floor, who bails the empty cardboard boxes for recycling, who delivers the spoils to the Salvation Army. There's something beautiful about this simple menial work, though. Take the food marked as spoils, for example. It's all still good. The fruit is good. The meat is good. 
the flowers are good, but they're not perfect. Anything that has an expiration date of today cannot be put out in the store for sale. And if a pear so much as rolls off the smooth green pyramid of fellow pears, it gets put in the spoils pile. It's not perfect anymore. So the Trader Joe's employees fill shiny carts with all the perfectly edible imperfection and wheel the load back to my kingdom. My first task of the day is to load the van with spoils and deliver it to the local Salvation Army where it will feed the hungry who don't care at all that their apple is lopsided, that their hamburger is in the waning stages of freshness. They don't care how it looks. They just want to eat. To me, this, here in the back room, this is what's real. Not the bright aisles of suburban shoppers making their menu selections from stacks of perfection. I understand the spoils. I can relate. Because I, too, am spoils. Over and over and over again. I used to be packages perfect. Back in the heyday of my church career, I was a shiny, unblemished apple. At least that's the image I polished up and displayed to the public. But now, stripped of my talent, my stage, and my six-figure salary, I relish the imperfection. I relish the spoils. As I break down these empty squares of cardboard, abandoned boxes that once held and protected good more valuable than themselves, I survey my kingdom, and I am pleased. I feed cardboard piles into the giant maw of the baler and chuckle to myself as I think, I am recycled Dieter. I'm emptied and crumbled and stained and ready to be used again in a new way, in a new life. Work was hard today. I'm tired. The knuckles of my twisted right hand are scraped raw. My hand is numb now, so I don't feel it when I bash it against something harder than skin. But you know what? It's okay. I come home after work, and I think it's good today. It's not a sermon it's not a performance. It's not perfection. But the cardboard is recycled. The spoils are feeding the hungry. And today I'm thinking life is good. It's very good. I didn't bring the picture because I, I knew it wouldn't display properly and give you, but you can find it online. But one of his images is a self-portrait where he stands out with the starry sky behind him and he's in the foreground of the picture. He's got his arms out and the caption says something like, God, the God who made the universe, you're my shepherd too. So, Dieter Zander is an example of someone who puts flesh and bones on this truth that we looked at earlier. For none of us lives for himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. He's still alive. 
And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now, Jonathan Edwards, Brainerd, Dieter Zander, the Littles, well-known, widely respected people. And these last two weeks, I've held them up as exemplars of excellence in, in what it looks like to be grown up in Christ. But I, I don't want to leave us thinking that recognized accomplishments are in any way necessary to being an exemplar of excellence in what this is about, this being grown up in Christ. We see in Dieter Zander someone who was a superstar, but is no longer. But I want to look a little bit more into that footnote, footnote 67, that I said we'd return to. Jonathan Edwards had a bunch of kids, and one of his kids was his daughter, Jerusha. And as I uh, said this I made an error in this calculation. She actually was about six weeks short of her 18th birthday. So you're talking about a kid. Keep in mind that she's 17 years old when she died. This is what Jonathan Edwards' footnote has to say. Since this, meaning Brainerd's death, it has pleased a holy and sovereign God to take away this my dear child by death on the 14th of February next following after a short illness of five days in the 18th year of her age. Now, listen to what this kid, you didn't know her name before you walked in here. Listen to what her daddy is saying about this little girl. That's what she was. She was a person of much the same spirit with Mr. Brainerd. She had constantly taken care of and attended him in his sickness for 19 weeks before his death, devoting herself to it with great delight because she looked on him as an eminent servant of Jesus Christ. In this time, he had much conversation with her on the things of religion and in his dying state often expressed to us her parents his great satisfaction concerning her true piety and his confidence that he should meet her in heaven and his high opinion of her not only as a true Christian but a very eminent saint one whose soul was uncommonly fed and entertained with things that appertain to the most spiritual, experimental, and distinguishing parts of religion in one who by the temper of her mind was fitted to deny herself for God and to do good beyond any young woman whatsoever that he knew of. She had manifested a heart uncommonly devoted to God in the course of her life many years before her death. Remember? She's not yet 18 when she died. And said on her deathbed, 
that, quote, she had not seen one minute for several years wherein she desired to live one minute longer for the sake of any other good in life, but doing good, living to God, and doing what might be for his glory. So in what I read of you in Brainerd's diary, all those words that talk about choice, As a 17-year-old going on 18, this unknown, obscure person, not a superstar, not even a former superstar, but a 17-and-some-odd-month-old kid, exemplifies what it looks like to live not for self, but for Christ. And so, that encourages me. Because in Colossians 1.28, the very possibility of being mature in Christ is not reserved for the superstars or the once superstars. It's all of us. It's me. Last week, we spent a bit of time talking about Eugene Peterson's book, um, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And in that, Peterson is arguing, and by the way, uh, that's a, if I could have the next slide, please. Um, Peterson is arguing that so often we approach our faith as a tourist, (laughs) as a tourist. Well, we all know that tourists are focused on self. And Peterson is arguing that really what's being called for here as followers of Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Not as a tourist, a Christ tourist, but a journey expressed as a disciple, as a pilgrim. And so this week we've expanded on that a little bit. And so this whole question of being grown up in Christ, we have another question to ask ourselves as we live this out practically. Who am I living for? Myself? Others? Or Christ? I want to return in closing to uh, Peterson's paraphrase of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down. Start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race 
that we're in. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that your, your word is so clear, and we thank you that you have given us this great cloud of witnesses. Exemplars of excellence in what it looks like to be grown up in you, to be filled with you, and to live for you, not self, not even for others, as good as that is, but for you. And so we pray that your spirit would do his deep and incisive work in each of our hearts and that you would, through this ministry, bring us to being truly grown up in you. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. She said